now take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Genesis, all the way at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, today picking up in verse 26, we'll be reading to the end of the chapter in verse 31. Uh, We have several visitors with us today, and if you are visiting, you need to know that you're catching us near the beginning of a pretty rare topical study. Our regular uh, practice here at Redeemer is to pick a text of Scripture and to move through it sequentially uh, and, uh, and uh, systematically, I suppose. One text to the next, one verse after the other. Uh, our, our, our elders this summer have decided that we will be studying topically issues of marriage and sexuality as we find them in the Scriptures. Uh, We are still very much in the foundation-building phase of this larger study. Last week, two weeks ago, uh, when I was here, we looked at Romans chapter 1, looking at the distinction between God our creator and we his creation and what it means to give praise and honor to him with all of our lives. Today, we're going to look at what it means for men and women to be made together in the image of God. That's our uh, study today, verses 26 through 31. Uh, And uh, it will be, even if you are regular with us, it may be a little different than normal. That's okay. Uh, But we're going to look at God's word and and hopefully find the wisdom that he has here for us together. So Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, before we read, let's go to the Lord again together in prayer and seek his blessing on our study. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Father, we thank you that you have given your perfect word so that we might know your will in the earth and the world that you have created and your will and your plan for us, your people. Help us as we receive this to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Help us to rejoice in you, our great God and creator, our King and Savior. Help us to see more of you and to love you and to follow you through this uh, passage that we'll read today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now God's word as we find it in Genesis chapter 1, beginning to read in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. uh, May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, Some of you may uh, be old enough to remember in the early hours of uh, a Monday morning in January 1994, a magnitude 6.7 earthquake struck the San Fernando Valley of California. 
Uh, it's still counted as, uh, as the largest quake in U.S. history, as well as the costliest. Damage estimates range uh, around the $20 billion mark, not to mention 57 lives lost. It happened about 4.30 in the morning, which meant there were still a few hours of darkness yet to go. And in those pre-dawn hours, uh, something strange began to happen as residents of Los Angeles stepped outside of their homes to survey the damage. They were confronted with an ominous-looking silver cloud stretched across the sky. They were worried. Some people were so worried that they called the Griffith Observatory in the Hollywood Hills, wondering if perhaps uh, the earthquake had released some sort of noxious chemicals that were now hovering over the city. Others wondered if maybe there was some solar phenomenon uh, connected to the earthquake. After a few phone calls, the staff at the observatory realized what was happening. The Northridge earthquake caused a near-total blackout over the city. And now, for the first time in living memory, the Milky Way could be seen over the streets of Los Angeles. If you live in Southern California, light pollution is part of the scenery. You get used to seeing the night sky illuminated with that faint glow that blocks out the stars. And eventually, what is artificial begins to feel natural. What is natural may be a bit unsettling. Here is a parable for our time concerning what it means to live as men and women in the world that God created. There is, as you know, almost no end to the pollution filling the atmosphere of our understanding about gender and sexuality and how those things relate to our personal identity. Today, it is possible for political pundits to raise controversy just by asking seemingly obvious questions like, what is a woman? Today, we are being told that sex and gender are separate concepts, that they bear no necessary connection to one another. Today, we are being told that sexuality is something assigned rather than something inherent. Today, our children are being told that personal expression has nothing to do with biological function. It continues. Today, masculinity is viewed as essentially toxic. Femininity is a curiosity from another age, something like a hand-cranked automobile. Today, we are being told that who you love romantically, that what makes a marriage, those things are nothing more than a matter of taste. Today, we are being told that who you feel you ought to be is the most important thing about you. If I can mix my metaphors a bit, this, as you know, is just the tip of the iceberg. On the morning of January 17, 1994, the residents of Los Angeles saw the sky as God had created it, and some were unsettled. The answer for their uneasiness was simply to realize that what they were seeing was normal. What they were seeing was good. What they were seeing was the beauty of creation that reveals the hand of the Creator. I think we ought to apply that same logic to our current cultural moment regarding gender and sexuality. We could, of course, answer the gender pollution of our age with a bullhorn, with a soapbox, 
We can shout down all those people who believe and perpetuate the lie that says that men and women are undifferentiated and interchangeable. We could get angry, we could get loud, we could get defensive. Or we could open our Bibles and appreciate human sexuality as God has created it. We can look at his scriptures and step back and see God's design for men and women, and we can say with our creator, this is very good. That's what we're going to do today. I heard that last week while I was gone, Pastor Rob Hill had a three-point sermon that was perfectly alliterative. Every point beginning with the same letter. I only have two points this week, but I did manage to make them alliterate. You'd be proud of me. Uh, So today we're going to focus on the ideas of dignity and design, two very good aspects of how God made men and women, dignity and design. We begin by recognizing that God made men and women equal in dignity, equal in dignity. Now, we didn't read the whole chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 1, but if you are familiar with the account of creation as we find it in Scripture, you know that there's a certain rhythm Uh, to this first chapter that reveals God's power in creation. There's this cadence, this beat that goes along, and and it follows the language of let this happen, right? God speaks, and creation becomes. So he says, let there be light, and there was light. He says, let the waters be gathered together. Let uh, the the earth, uh, the dry land appear, and the dry land appeared. God said, uh, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Suddenly there are elephants and aardvarks. It all happened. And there's this rhythm that we find, but then that cadence is interrupted in verse 26 with the creation of humanity. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There was this rhythm of declaration that suddenly becomes the Lord's discussion. God takes counsel with himself. It's not a full-orbed Trinitarian theology. Not yet, not, not exactly. The Trinity is a truth that we have to wait to see revealed in its fullness in the New Testament. But here, even in the first chapter of the Bible, we're catching glimpses of it. So we found that in the beginning, God created, and in the beginning, God's spirit was over the waters. And now in verse 26, uh, in the beginning, God said, let us. God, in a sense, takes counsel with himself. It reveals to us something of God's intention. Not that the other parts of creation were haphazard. Right? They looked strange, but koala bears were thought out ahead of time. It wasn't just what cropped up in God's mind. Everything was intentional. Everything that God does is founded on his immutable and perfect, inexhaustible wisdom. The Lord of creation does not do anything randomly. But then in verse 26, this language of deliberation, and it's there for our benefit. It is there to catch our attention and to slow us down and to draw our eyes to see that when God came to make man, he did things differently. Specifically, when God created man, he made man in his image, we are told. Notice a a lack of an indefinite article there in verse 26. It does not say that God created an ubermensch, a superman. It doesn't say, let us make a man. It says, let us make man, as in mankind. In the very next sentence, God says, and let them have dominion. God is not speaking just of one individual. He's talking about the creation of all humankind. 
Those are the people that he's made in the image of God. Men and women, young and old, tall and short, they're all made in his image. Now, if you are looking for a theological chasm to explore for the rest of your life, this idea of the image of God is a place where you could get lost for sure. Uh, It is deep, uh, and it's hard to find the bottom. Part of the problem is that Genesis chapter 1 doesn't actually elaborate on on what it means uh, to be made in the image of God. It doesn't teach us where this image is located. It doesn't teach us what it is comprised of. It doesn't even tell us what kind of a difference it ought to make in our lives. In order to understand those things, you practically have to read the rest of Scripture. But it's worth mentioning here that even though sin which comes in Genesis chapter 3 and affects the rest of the story, even though sin has broken uh, the image of God in man, even though it's damaged this image of God, it has not completely destroyed it. It's true that, uh, that what we are now after sin is not what we were originally created to be. It's also true that what we are now is not what we will be when Christ returns for his people. There is damage, but the image of God in man is not Uh, is not completely destroyed. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. God institutes capital punishment for the crime, the sin of murdering another human being. Why? He says, because man is made in God's image. Genesis chapter 9. Same thing happens uh, in James, in the New Testament, chapter 3. He tells us not to use our tongues both to bless God and curse man because man is made in God's likeness, he says. So the image of God is broken by the fall but not obliterated. It remains in us, even today, simply by virtue of our being humans, something that separates us from the rest of creation, something that elevates us. Now, through the ages, philosophers and theologians have given their ideas. What exactly is the image of God that persists in man? Where can it be found? Some earlier thinkers uh, suggested that the image of God is found in the fact that man walks upright not on all fours like an animal. Uh, Others said it comes in our capacity for relationship and communication that is clearly distinct uh, from the animals, and and on it goes. Others point to the, uh, the existence of human endeavors like culture and art and society and science, and people gave all sorts of answers, attempting to locate the image of God in something that people do, something that humans create. But the Bible seems to locate the image of God rather in who we are. It is the dignity that God has bestowed upon us just by virtue of being humans, just like we sang from Psalm 8 today. A little lower than the angels, says Psalm 8, crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because you've done something? Because you've achieved something? Because you have worked in some extraordinary way? No, because God has made you in his image. So again, this is an enormously large concept. Historically, the Reformed tradition, we have understood the image of God as referring to the fact that human beings are at least three things. We are moral, we are spiritual, and we are everlasting. Humans are moral. Animals are not. Animals live and work by instinct. They kill what they need to. They take what is necessary to survive. Again, some of you are old enough to remember Siegfried and Roy. 2003, in their stage show in Las Vegas, a white tiger grabbed Roy Horn by the neck and severed his spine and drug him off the stage. And the tiger was not held responsible. Why? 
because tigers are not moral creatures. They're creatures of instinct. Human beings, on the other hand, we are moral. We not only engage in moral reasoning, but we stand in a moral relationship to the God who made us. Our hearts are inclined to good or to evil. We are at peace with God or at enmity with him. We will all be held responsible before the judgment seat of the God who made us. Human beings are moral creatures. It's part of the image of God in man. People are also spiritual and everlasting. The children's catechism says it this way. It says that we have souls that will last forever. And that is only true of people. Last year, we did a study through Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes 12 reminds us uh, that what is true of human beings is not true of animals, that when animals die, the spirit returns to the dust, but when men die, the soul returns to God who gave it. So when our bodies expire, that's not the end. Our identity is not eradicated. Our existence is not snuffed out when our neurons stop firing. All of this is part of our humanity. It's not merely a part of our human capacity. And I hope you understand the difference. This is a very important point. The, if the image of God is found in our human capacities, the things we can do, you know. If the image of God is found, for exist, uh, example, in our capacity for language, then what should we think of those who can't communicate? What are the mentally incapacitated? Uh, what of uh, the stroke victim? What of that elderly parent slipping slowly into dementia? If the image of God is found in our human intellect, does that mean that the higher your IQ, the more human you are? If the image of God is found in art, or culture, or science, or technology, does that mean that civilized nations have a right to conquer and enslave the savages living in huts and jungles? All of these uh, arguments have been used and are being used. When mankind is uh, lowered to just little more than a beast, if more at all. But the Bible guards against all of those errors, all those pitfalls, by making the image of God who we are rather than what we can do. The Bible makes the image of God part of the dignity of our humanity, and it applies that dignity to men and women together, equally. So when you turn to the New Testament, there is no shortage of people who stumble over that line in 1 Peter chapter 3. You know the one. It says, husbands are called to live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And that language is offensive to our modern ears. People read that as an indication of how backward Christians still are. And why have not all of the wonderful advances of the power of feminism eliminated that kind of thinking from human minds by now? What does the rest of the verse say? It says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since or because they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. That word, your, at the end, is a plural possessive. For you Southerners, the word is y'alls. So that both y'alls' prayers will not be hindered. You are together, says Peter. It speaks of morality, it speaks of spirituality, it speaks of immortality. 
heirs together of the grace of life, says the apostle. Men and women both made in the image of God, both with the dignity that God gave to all humanity as a gift, not as an achievement. Pastor Herschel York said that during uh, one particularly long argument with his wife, he felt very proud of himself because he managed to find a way to rebuff and answer every single one of the concerns that she was raising. He felt that he handled the situation pretty well, and he came out on top. But then he said his wife turned to him and said, you know, you don't treat me like the weaker vessel. You treat me like the lesser vessel. And in the church, that should not be. In God's creation, both men and women bear God's image. Both men and women have the same eternal Value. Men and women both carry the same divine dignity because it's the gift that God has given to all of humanity by making us in his image. God made men and women equal in dignity. He also made them different by design. Here's our second point. Different by design. Now, in verse 27, we encounter the first poem anywhere in the Bible. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's nothing particularly extra special about the poems in the Bible. Uh, they're, They're not more spiritual than the prose sections, but they are another instance of the Holy Spirit slowing us down putting a magnifying glass on the text, saying, look at this, ponder this, think about what this means for all of creation and existence. And in this magnifying lens that Scripture places on itself, we find the unavoidable, irrefutable, self-evident reality that God made man with an inherent sexuality. In biological terms, the word is sexually dimorphous. That is, that human sexuality is a binary, not a spectrum. God made men male and female. God created men and women. He made them different from one another, yet complementary to one another, and corresponding to one another. It was part of his plan. It was his original design. And as created, it was very, very good. Now, we've already observed that this passage in Genesis is focused much more on our identity than our capacity, who we are and not just what we do. Humans engage in abstract reasoning and thought. We produce art and science and culture, but in all of those things, our identity precedes our ability. We don't become human by doing those things. Rather, we do those things because we are human. Identity precedes ability, and we have to apply that same principle here in verse 27. When we encounter this truth that God made humanity male and female. Now, in in a narrow sense, when we look at this text, these verses do focus on different abilities or different capacities of men and women. So in verse 28, immediately after, the Lord blesses his newly created pair with this five-fold commission, which we call uh, the cultural mandate. 
He tells them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And apart from capacities, human reproductive capacities, those things are out of reach. Notice also verse 27, the text uses biologically specific language. It actually does not say that God created them masculine and feminine. It doesn't even call them husband and wife. It says God made them male and female. It's the kind of thing you can see on an ultrasound picture. So yes, there is a sense in which this text is speaking about our basic biological capacities. But in a much larger sense, we have to understand that this binary division runs much deeper and much wider than how we are shaped and which bathrooms we use or on which side of a reproductive equation we happen to find ourselves. Every person in this room was created male or female, a boy or a girl who grew into a man or a woman. It was decided in the mind of God before your parents ever met. It was encoded in every strand of DNA in your body from the moment of your conception, and it has colored how you view the world, how you move through it, how you form relationships, how you think about yourself, how safe you feel when you have to walk through a dark parking lot alone late at night. It influences everything around you. There are basic sexual differences between men and women uh, that only the most willfully ignorant are bold enough to dismiss. Generally speaking, broadly applied, I know you can think of the, the exception that proves the rule, but broadly applied, men are larger and have more muscle mass and strength than women do. Generally speaking, broadly applied, women create faster and stronger emotional bonds with other people. Generally speaking, to quote Dorothy Sayers, women have more hair on their heads and less on their faces. According to Stanford Medicine Magazine, they say that women are more adept at retrieving information from long-term memory, while men, on average, can more easily juggle items in working memory. But I bet all of you married couples already knew that. Right? There are scores and scads of differences between men and women. And they all point to the truth that our maleness and our femaleness is not just about the single factor of our reproductive capacity. It has to do with who we are, with who God designed us to be from start to finish. Now, we also have to acknowledge, I think, that much about our, our maleness and our femaleness, much about how it impacts our lives, has been broken by the fall as well. Right, so what people once called the war between the sexes, uh, well, that's a function of our depravity, not of God's design. And the particular ways that one sinner takes advantage of another sinner, that's often intensified along and across this divide between men and women. It's true that human sin can often make the vulnerable feel as though the difference of God's design is a burden rather than a blessing. We need to acknowledge that. It's also true that when it comes to salvation, there is no difference between men and women whatsoever. The New Testament tells us this. In Christ, there is neither male nor female. 
That is, in our spiritual standing before the God who saves us, how we receive salvation as a gift from him, there's no disparity, there's no division between how a man experiences grace through faith by Jesus Christ or how a woman receives the same gift. So in some ways, our sin makes these differences between men and women seem much bigger uh, than they ought to be. In other ways, God's grace makes the difference seem smaller than we expect it. And yet when we go back to God's original design, we have to acknowledge that his wisdom to make man male and female is neither incidental nor is it unimportant. It is not a curse to be endured, nor is it a privilege to be boasted in. It is part of God's good gift for humanity. God made men male And female, he made them different by design, and that's a very good thing. Uh, My hope is that when we come, Lord willing, in two weeks to look at marriage specifically, we're going to look a bit more at what the Bible teaches about how uh, our sexuality, our gender influences the way that we live relationally with one another. My hope is that we'll look at that a little bit more soon. But for now, I think we need this very good view of men and women to push back against the primary lie that is gaining momentum in our post-Christian world. That lie is a lie that we can call paganism on revenge. Now, you know that in many worldview systems that dominated the ancient world uh, before Christianity, there was a deep-seated belief in a separation between what was material and what was spiritual. In philosophical terms, it's known as platonic dualism. You can find the naysayers online. They're, they're starting to come with some, uh, some studies to say that Plato himself might not have been very much of a dualist. Regardless, the popular belief, the idea was that your true identity, what was real and good, was to be found in your invisible and immortal soul. That was the real you. And your body, instead, was a barrier. It was a hindrance to true spiritual enlightenment. The teaching was summed up in Plato's maxim that the body is the prison house of the soul. There was a pagan dualism happening, and then then once the gospel began to spread, that pagan approach started to mix with Christianity on the borders. It helped to produce what Bible scholars today know as Gnosticism. The early sparks of Gnostic thought can be found Uh, in some of the apostles' arguments in the New Testament, arguments against Gnosticism. We find it particularly in 1 Corinthians. There, Paul is dealing with Christians who seem to think that what happens in the body doesn't matter. All that matters is what you do with your soul. And Paul's answer to them is the same as what our answer today should be, that both the soul and the body are from the Lord. Both come from him, both belong to him, both will be redeemed when Christ returns. Now fast forward about two millennia. An equal and opposite reaction, and the pendulum begins to swing in the other direction. And so the Enlightenment in Europe led first to the elevation of human reason. It led eventually to the rejection of any and all spiritual reality. And so this idea of the eternal soul of man was shelved in the fiction section. It was put over there with myths and fables. Instead, the material world became the be-all, end-all for your existence. Consciousness was seen as nothing more than reactions in your frontal lobes. 
man was classified as a semi-glorified animal, if glorified at all. And through that kind of thinking, humanity became something to be evaluated, to be classified, to be placed in a ranked order. All the way up to the eugenicists of the early 20th century. They had a sliding scale of human value, and they worked it out depending on things like sex and race, the size and the shape of your skull, and a few other factors that they worked in. Well, today we have returned to the triumph of the spiritual over the material. Our culture no longer uses that terminology. Instead, the spiritual has been replaced by the psychological. Who you are, who you really are, deep down inside is what you think, how you feel yourself to be. And so someone in the wider world makes this statement that would have seemed incomprehensible 15 years ago. I am a woman trapped in a man's body, and society barely flinches. Why do we not flinch? Because we've heard it before. The body is the prison house of the soul. In our culture, that prison is a jail cell that can be ignored, it can be denied, or more often it can be arranged to fit how you feel about yourself on the inside. This is the lie that is being published and propped up in every corner of our society. From the highest governmental bodies down to the coffee shop on the corner, it is paganism all over again. It is Gnostic dualism warmed up and served as leftovers. That's all it is. It's the division between the soul and the body, between your matter and your mind, between what people today call your biological sex and your gender identity. As always, believers, the best weapon to counteract a lie is the truth seen in all of its beauty. And the truth is that God made men male and female. He didn't just create male and female bodies. He didn't just make male and female souls. He created men and women. He made whole organic people different from one another in many ways. And when God created men and women, it was a very good thing. They were different yet dignified. They were both made in his image. They both had all the honor and the earthly glory that belonged to his representatives in his universe. And that means that if God has made you a man or a woman, he has done it on purpose. This is perhaps particularly for our younger people. If God has made you a girl or a boy, he has made you according to his perfect design. Who you are on the inside is not disconnected from who God made you to be on the outside, and that is a very good thing. It's true that sin makes living in broken bodies more difficult than it could have been. It's true that as you grow up, you may not always enjoy every aspect of what it means to become a man or a woman. But we are Presbyterians, we believe in God's general revelation. Not just the mountains and the hills and the stars and the sky, but God also made our bodies to reveal his plan for us. The goodness of his order and his design. And if he has made you male or female, this is part of God's good gift 
to make you who you are. Now, beyond that, we know that God cares about the souls and the bodies that he's given us. We know that because after sin entered our world through the first man and woman, God himself entered in a real human body, in flesh and blood. God the Son took on flesh. God the Son was born by a mother just like every man and woman who ever came into existence in the world. Jesus came into creation in a gendered body. He was circumcised on the eighth day, let the reader understand. Right? He lived in society as a boy. He became a man. He treated the women who followed him with respect and perfect purity. Jesus lived in a real human body, a male body. Jesus became a man. And in that male body, he served as Heavenly Father for 33 years perfectly. He laid down his life as a sacrifice for sinners. He was raised again in that glorified body so that both men and women might become heirs together of the eternal life through faith in his name. As the New Testament tells us, he became a man so that men and women together might be renewed after the image of our creator. We know that God cares about the bodies that he's given us because that's what Paul tells us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 13 and following, Paul says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord meant for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. I told you that this sermon would be a little different than normal. Uh, If you can believe it, an earlier version of this sermon had three points, but quite frankly, I can't bear to do that to you. Uh, Better to stop where we are. But I do want to close with two uh, specific points of application. The first point of application is this, that Christians of all people ought to have compassion for those who are confused about who they really are. We are the ones, I hope, who know more than anyone else the deep and ravaging effects of sin on our bodies and on our minds. We know our sin intimately because we know the Savior who delivers us from it. And so we should know how sin has twisted not only what we know about God, but also what we believe about ourselves. And it means that we should never be surprised, we should never be cruel, we should never lack compassion when we see other people caught in slavery of sin, believing lies about what it means to be men and women created with dignity in the image of God. Christians of all people ought to have compassion for sinners caught in sin. And when we have the chance to speak to them, we should respond with sensitivity. We should respond with the gospel. We should respond with the truth spoken in love. That leads to our second point of application. That Christians of all people ought never to call evil what God has called good. I know there is enormous pressure on some of you to do exactly that. There is far more pressure in your job than there is in mine to go along with the lie that is being sold to us. 
there's perhaps a push to mandate the pronouns that you use and the bathrooms that you share. And it all masquerades under this guise of compassion and acceptance and inclusion and above all, love. But the scripture tells us that love always rejoices with the truth. And as Christians, that is what we are called to do. To speak the truth in love. Whether you're at work, whether you're at a restaurant, whether you're talking to your neighbor, whether you are sitting on the edge of your bed with your adolescent daughter who's trying to make sense of who she is, Christians are called to speak the truth in love. We are not called to be belligerent. We are not called to be arrogant. We are not called to be rude. We're called to speak the truth in love. And the truth is that God has made man in his image. He's made them male and female. And that's a very good thing. Let's pray together. Gracious God and King, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us as we read it to grow more into it. Father, this presses in in many ways against the world uh, outside the church, but it also presses against our desires within the church to have a compassionate response to the people that we know and love in our families and our homes. Oh, Father, give us wisdom to walk with you. Give us grace to know that you made us and you know us and you call us after yourself. Give us grace to know that you sent Christ Jesus, our Savior, that we might be renewed in this image that you have bestowed upon us. Oh, Lord, it's a gift from you. Help us to receive it and to rejoice in you as such. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. come now to a table that proclaims to us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A table that is set before us with tangible signs and symbols, reminding us that Jesus Christ did come with a real body and with real blood, broken and poured out to save sinners from their sin. Not just the sin of believing and perpetuating lies, but primarily the sin of not believing in him. The sin of turning away from him and finding in ourselves someone to worship instead of the Lord who created us. This table is set before us to remind us that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. There's none who does good, no, not one, and that Christ came as the great shepherd of souls to draw us back to himself in a way that we could never come by ourselves. This table is set before you. It's not set by your hands. This is not a potluck that you have contributed to. It reminds us that spiritually we are receivers of the grace of God given as a gift. The table that is before us and the promises of forgiveness and peace with God that are proclaimed here are for all those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have trusted in him and the promise of his gospel, believed in the glory of his resurrection and have publicly professed that he is their Lord and Savior. If that's you, even if you're not a member of this church, come and eat and drink. If you've never publicly professed and been joined to a a Christian body, allow the elements to pass. Do not eat and drink, as Paul says, judgment upon yourselves, but consider whether the Lord might be calling you to faith in himself as well.
we read in Mark's gospel that as Jesus was eating with his disciples, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Please join me in prayer. O gracious God and Father, we pray that by your mercy you would give us faith in the one who came to be the Savior of sinners. Help us here at this table, your people called by your name, to find fellowship with yourself by the grace of your Holy Spirit, to receive your promises unto eternal life by believing in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sustain us, O Lord, with his goodness, with his righteousness, and keep us uh, spotless and clean until that last day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, gathered together with his disciples and he took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. 
Take and drink, all of you. Christ said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you. Please join me in prayer. O gracious God and King, we thank you for all the works your hands have made. We thank you for remaking us by the work of your spirit through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep us, Father, walking with you, trusting in him, believing your promises until that day when we see them all fulfilled and we eat and drink together with you in the kingdom of God, we pray. Amen. <laughs>